Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2015. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching at tgc.org slash podcasts. There's something about the book of Acts that's, that's really unique. In, in the same way that we, that we go to the Gospels and, and we read the account of, of Christ's passion on the cross, and we don't walk away from that thinking, well, I wonder when that's going to happen again. So with the book of Acts, there are things that are quite unique that needed to happen once in order to accomplish God's plan. And having happened, we now stand on that foundation. We don't say, oh, when's that going to happen again? I'm Nancy Guthrie, and welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. This is an audio series for people who are looking for something more than just, you know, a little inspirational thought for the day when we go to the Bible. This is for people who find themselves leading discussions about the Bible, teaching Sunday school, leading Bible studies, people who really want to be equipped to rightly, effectively, and creatively teach through books of the Bible. And in this episode, we're going to focus on the book of Acts. And I am in Portland, Oregon, talking with Dr. Michael Lawrence, who is senior pastor at Henson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon. And I'm so grateful to be here with you in your office. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Now, you've been here at Henson in Portland for Four years. I've been here four years. That's right. Moved here from Washington, D.C. Where you were at Capitol Baptist. That's right. Capitol Hill Baptist. I was at Capitol Hill Baptist with Mark Dever. I was there almost a decade. And you went to Duke. I did. And then to Gordon-Conwell. Where I got an MDiv, Master of Divinity. And then a PhD at Cambridge. Yes. That kind of sounds intimidating to me. Uh, Cambridge was a wonderful place to to live and study with my family for four years. We just had a great time. I bet. And then you're also the author of Biblical Theology in the Life of the Church, published by Crossway. Yeah, it was a real honor and privilege to be able to write that book. Nine Marks gave me uh, an opportunity to do that, and Crossway was a wonderful you know, publisher to work with. So, And it allowed me to uh, really give some expression to something that's been a passion of mine ever since uh, seminary, and that is biblical theology. Well, I share that love of biblical theology with you, certainly. And as I listened through all of your sermons on Acts, preparing for talking with you today, um, I heard that biblical theology come through. And to me, um, it made your teaching of the book of Acts in many ways very different Hmm. um, from other teaching of the book's of Acts that I've heard. Um, we get the sense as I listened to you that Acts really does have a unique part to play in the story of the history of redemption. If Acts were not in the Bible, what would we not understand about what God is doing to redeem a people for himself? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, I, I think maybe... Uh, a good analogy would be to understand that that Acts, along with the Gospels, is is the great hinge mm-hmm. in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, if Acts weren't there, uh, we wouldn't understand how the door had turned. 
uh, it wouldn't make, I don't think it'd make much sense to us. Because what, what we see in, in the book of Acts is that God, in fact, has had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people for himself, for his glory, from all the nations. And Acts explains how we got there, how we got from God's people, Israel, defined ethnically, to God's people, the, the, the true Israel, that includes both Jew and Gentile, no longer defined ethnically, but defined by their faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Acts helps us see how you get there. So rather than understanding the book of Acts as merely uh, a, a, a story about the, the beginnings of evangelism and missions, and it certainly is that, uh, rather than seeing the book of Acts as, as, as merely a, a place where we go to try to figure out things about controversial issues around the Holy yeah. Spirit or whatever, yes. I think we need to understand the book of Acts as, as the book that explains who we are as New Testament believers uh, and how God actually accomplished our inclusion in Christ. There's a sense in which, too, isn't there, as we look back at the Old Testament for example, even when we look at the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. we see this division of languages. And when we're teaching the Tower of Babel, there's a sense then when we come to Acts at Pentecost. That's right. When all the languages, language is no longer a barrier That's right. to the spread of the gospel. That, that the whole Tower of Babel thing now makes sense. That's right. Or when we read the so many of the prophets who speak about a day. Mm-hmm. Um, about being a light to the Gentiles and speak about a day when God is going to bring in people from all over the earth to be a part of his people. I mean, I, I suppose the Jewish people for so long just had no categories for that, how that was going to happen. I think that's right. I think that, th- that they were seeing the prophets were pointing them forward and they were seeing dimly. Dimly, yes. You, you, you know, but it wasn't entirely clear. How, how are... The divisions that God himself had put in place. Yes. Because it's God who divided the languages at Babel in judgment. Uh, It's God who separated Jew from Gentile. And said, don't intermarry. That's right. He put the division in place. And yet, God declares throughout the, the Old Testament that he's the God of the whole earth, the God of the whole world, and the whole world is going to be filled with his glory. How is that going to happen? How are the Gentiles going to be included in this? How are the divisions, as you mentioned, of Babel going to be overcome? And and what we see is that in Christ, fulfilling all of the promises of God, that that redemptive overcoming uh, is, is, is being accomplished. And it's happening right here on the pages of the book of Acts. Therefore, there's something about the book of Acts that's, that's really unique. In, in the same way that we, that we go to the Gospels and, and we read the account of, of Christ's passion on the cross, and we don't walk away from that thinking, well, I wonder when that's going to happen again. So with the book of Acts, there are things that are quite unique that needed to happen once in order to accomplish God's plan. And having happened, we now stand on that foundation. We don't say, oh, when's that going to happen again? Well, that's a key thing if I'm teaching through the book of Acts, because, you know, perhaps I have people I'm teaching and perhaps I even wonder, okay, as I'm as trying to figure out how to apply this, mm. so many things in the book of Acts I look at and I think, so should I say that should be happening now? I right. mean, throughout the book of Acts, we have in- 
instant miracles. That's right. Not just praying for someone and over a period of time they right. are healed. But but ab- absolutely miraculous. Dead. Yeah. Right. right. And um, and even the tongues of fire. Tongues that of fire come coming down. down the uh, people laying hands on other people, and all of a sudden they're speaking in tongues. Right. Uh, there, there there are all sorts of things. I mean, I just. Uh, uh, last week, I, w- I was I was preaching in, in a part of Acts where where Paul's ministry in Ephesus is so powerful that they're they're taking handkerchiefs that he's touched, and and people are being healed uh, by 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 touching those handkerchiefs, and, and so the question immediately arises: Should we expect that to be happening today? Are there apostles? Are there today apostles that today? If they mail us right. their handkerchief. We could experience. That's that. right. So one of the key interpretive questions that you have to deal with in the Book of Acts is: Is what in the Book of Acts is what we would call normative? It is to be characteristic of the ongoing life of the church, and what about the Book of Acts? was like the cross itself and the resurrection of Christ itself, unique. A singular a, a event. A singular event that, was, that, that is tied to the historical accomplishment of God's plan of redemption. You know, maybe that's another place where your sense of biblical theology comes into play. When we look at the scope of the history of redemption, we see every time God is doing a unique work, uh, unique epic time in history. That's where we see miracles. That is, that's exactly I mean, right. At the time of Moses, so, we see miracles. That's right. Uh, the, the time, the, the places in the Old Testament, in particular, where we see really dramatic miracles, and also uh, a, a dramatic and very visible display of demonic opposition. Absolutely uh, evil. We mm. see, we see that at the Exodus, and we see it again in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha who are themselves prophesying the need for a new exodus. They actually kind of live it out in their lives. Uh, so, And then we see it again at the time of Jesus. Many people often ask, well, you know, all of the demonic things you see in the Gospels, people will say, well, was that just a different era? Well, in a sense, yes, it was. That's but right. um, at the same time, we see great miracles and we also see great demonic activity. That's right. Mm-hmm. So so at these at these epic moments when, when God is moving his redemptive purposes forward in history, and I think that's really important, uh, the, the gospel, God's redemption is not a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's something that had to be accomplished in history. And so as, at, at these key moments in time when God breaks in, we, we would expect to see a couple of things. We would expect to see the enemy's opposition intensify and to kind of come out from the shadows and, and, uh, and be quite forceful in its opposition to God's work. And I think that's what we see. We would also expect to see God acting in ways to make abundantly clear that what this is for real, what he's doing is for, for real, uh, a, a validating and a confirming display of his supernatural power. Uh, when we look at the Old Testament for vast tracts of time in, in the Old Testament, you, you don't see miracles going on. That, that was not the normal experience of God's people in the Old Testament. And yet that's so much of the record. So we can tend, you know, we can tend to think, okay, if I read the Bible, yeah, we're, it is presenting those highlights it is. in a that's sense. That's right. And I remember reading a book by someone who said, who asked this rhetorical question, why would God fill the Bible with people having 
experiences, and he was speaking specifically of God speaking to you kind of experiences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that we I couldn't expect to have now. Mm-hmm. And it was a mm-hmm. rhetorical question. I kind of wanted to answer back to him the answer you've just given, yeah. that sense of uh, significant times of God working in redemptive history, That's right. but not being normative to the ordinary believer right. throughout because, time. Because, because that significant event then becomes foundational for normal life. Just like on your wedding day, you know, you do, every day of marriage is not your wedding day. It's not? <laughs> Don't tell my wife. Okay. Um, but, but you have that wedding day. You have that really significant, unusual, special day that then serves as a reminder, as a foundation for what normal marriage is going to look like. In, in, and it's just an analogy, but I think in some ways the same thing is happening here. Uh, the, the the exodus in the Old Testament was an extraordinary event, uh, m- m- miraculous on the grandest scale, and yet the for 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 centuries what the what the prophets say, what what the priests are supposed to say, what the Levites say is remember, remember, and and now live normal life in light of that that clear demonstration of God's love and power and faithfulness towards you. Uh, the, the cross, the cross accomplished our redemption. It doesn't need to be repeated, and now we live in light of that reality as the as the Holy Spirit reproduces that reality in us. I think very similar things are going on with the Book of Acts. Okay, as we begin to really think about how to help those who are listening teach through the book of Acts, it would seem foundational to understand that Acts is really the second part of a two-part book. That's right. Right? Um, Luke Luke wrote two books. Right. We don't realize that because John's in the middle, and yet in some ways it could be just one book. How does that make a difference as we approach the book of Acts to understand that this is the second of two parts? Well, I I think several things. One, when I'm thinking about... uh, teaching through the book of Acts, and I, and I notice or think about gospel background, I always go to Luke first. You know, when I'm, when I'm thinking about connections to the book of Acts back in the gospels, all of the gospels count, but, but Luke wrote these together. And there, there are a number of places where, particularly in the first three chapters uh, in the birth narrative, uh, as he's introducing us to this, this king that is coming, uh, he, he picks up some of those themes again in the book of Acts. So we, we want to be aware that, that Luke has written them together, and they are together a book about Jesus. They're, they're in one sense, one book about Jesus, what Jesus did before his resurrection and ascension, and what Jesus has been doing since his resurrection and ascension. And Luke makes that really clear in the very first verse of the book of Acts, because he says in my former book, referring to the gospel, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. It's really interesting, though. The, the, the word he uses there to talk about began to do and teach implies that he's still doing it. He's, he's continuing to do and to teach. And that's what this book is about. I think perhaps we can tend to come to the book of Acts and think, Pretty much Jesus has disappeared from the scene. And now we're going to pick up with the Holy Spirit, but somehow Jesus is somewhat diminished. Distant and diminished. And that's not at all what Luke wants us to see in the book of Acts. Uh, 
Jesus is the main character of the book of Acts in, in many ways. And you will have heard, people will have heard maybe the book of Acts described as the Acts of the Apostles. That's traditionally what, what it's called. R- recently, many people want to say, well, no, we really should call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. But, but I think actually being faithful to what Luke's doing, this is the book that's the Acts of the Lord Jesus, the risen, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He's the main character. So as I'm teaching through the book, how do I make sure that comes through? Well, great question. I, I think one of the things is, is that you, you want to continue to tie everything that's happening back to the original marching orders that Jesus gives the apostles uh, right at the beginning of the book uh, in, in Acts chapter 1. Uh, verse verse eight in in particular, which and, is a pretty important verse. Why don't we read that? Sure. Um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Important word for the mm-hmm. book, right? That's right. My witnesses, and then it says in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And in many ways, right there, we've got the outline. We've got the outline of the book for the book. And and what's what's clear is it's not just the outline of the book. But th- this is Jesus' plan. This is his mission uh, for, for how the redemption that he's accomplished is going to spread through the whole world. He's directing the mission. Uh, he's, he's planned it. He's, he's directing it. He's pulled his team together to accomplish it, the, the apostles, and then from there, the, the church as a whole. And, and again and again throughout the book of Acts, Luke will tie what the apostles are doing or what a local church is doing back to this, this mission that Jesus is directing. Give me an example of what you mean. Well, I, I mean, I think, so, so for example, in Paul's second missionary journey, as, as he's going out uh, to... The um, uh, to, to, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul has a plan, and it's a good plan. Uh, he wants to go back and visit all the churches that he planted on the first missionary journey. And so he's going to go back into what we know as Turkey, Asia Minor, and he kind of wants to spread into some new areas of Asia Minor. And that makes sense because these people haven't heard the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. And so he wants to go, but it's really interesting in, in, uh, chapter 16, verse seven, uh, it's it, it well, verse six says Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Well, what gives the Holy spirit is preventing them from preaching the gospel. That doesn't, that's confusing. That's confusing. And then, and then you see in the next verse, they came to the border of Mysia and they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by. Well, well why? Well, the next verse, Paul has a, Paul has a vision. It's a vision from the Lord. He sees a, a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia, it, we, we, uh, well, we would think of it as parts of it would be part of modern day Greece and also the modern nation of Macedonia. These are, these are Greek speakers. Jesus has a different plan than Paul. <laughs> Paul, Paul wanted to just keep spreading the gospel in, in Turkey in Asia minor, but Jesus is directing the mission and it's time to invade Europe with the gospel. Uh, and, and so Luke's, Luke's reminding us here um, that uh, the, 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 the program that Jesus set is still in place and Jesus is still directing it. 
I think there are lots of places like that. That's just one that I preached on here, here recently that immediately comes to mind. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the main actor. It's Jesus that's being witnessed to. Uh, and and it's, it's Jesus who is really demonstrating that he is the risen king. We talked about uh, this verse, verse 8, really providing an outline for the entire book. That's right. Um, so in the next few chapters, beginning in chapter 2, we're going to, he has said that you're going to receive power. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's what we see beginning in Acts 2. It, it starts right there. Focuses on Jerusalem. Right. And that focus on Jerusalem carries through all the way to the, uh, the end of chapter 7. Uh, with Stephen's martyrdom. And then we hear the second one, because he said first to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Samaria. That's right. And there in chapter eight, we see Peter and John go to Samaria. That's, that's exactly right. And so something you, startling happens there. Maybe it wasn't so startling that they received the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Precisely, because they were expecting that as, yeah. as, as Jews were expecting people. the Messiah. The Holy Spirit, this is the promise. But here's these Samaritans they hate. That's right. And they get to Samaria, and what happens? And they receive the gospel and uh, at the hands of, of Philip. Uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, just a, another note there, that uh, as, the, as the gospel goes to Samaria, it's not the apostles who actually take it. The church is persecuted and scatters because of the martyrdom of Stephen. And, and Philip is one of those scattered, and he's the one that, that first goes and, and, and preaches the gospel. It's fascinating that right away, the mission, though founded on apostolic witness, is bigger than the apostles. Yes. Um, but so, so the gospel goes to Samaria, and the Samaritans believe, and the word goes back to, to Jerusalem, and they, they can hardly believe it. Uh, when I listened to your message on this passage, that's probably the one that stood out for huh. me most huh. in your series. And you made the statement, uh, your key statement was that Jesus is building his church. And we see there in chapters eight and nine. I mean, if we were going to tell Jesus mm. how he might go about building his church, mm. it probably wouldn't be this way. No, it <laughs> that wouldn't. he's, you saw, we see there in chapters eight and nine, that Jesus is building his church first with an immoral Samaritan, this mm-hmm. Simon, the magi- magician. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how really that that's going to be that first convert there. Yeah. We, we would might think somebody, you know, a little more religious yeah. or upstanding. Yeah. And then you said this dehumanized eunuch. Yeah, that's right. And then thirdly, this angry Pharisee. This angry Pharisee. Which is Saul, this one who a couple chapters earlier was standing there with great pleasure. That's right, and, as Stephen was, was murdered. That's, I mean, this is exactly pretty right. stunning, really, that this is the way Jesus is going to build his church. Yeah, he's, gonna, he's going to build his church by bringing in the outcasts, by bringing in the excluded. Uh, he, and, and that shouldn't surprise us, because what did he say in his, in, when, when he was on earth? He said, I, I, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. The healthy don't need a doctor. Meaning, of course, those who, who think they're healthy. There's no one who's healthy. Mm-hmm. But, but Jesus came to bring in those who, who really recognize, I have no right to be here. I think as I heard that sermon and saw what you're doing here, I think this is one good reason, uh, one reason it's good to kind of step back and take huge sections rather than just individual stories, because we could take each of those individual stories 
and make a good teaching session about them. That's right. But what you're you're showing a pattern here by putting them together, which I think is demonstrating a, a wise teaching method. I, I think I think the Book of Acts is 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 cinematic in its in its character. There are these massive sweeps of time and movement and geography, and we lose that sense when all we do is teach the individual stories one by one. Now there's great value in doing that. And, and my own people wish I would do it more <laughs> because they see details in there and they right. want me to explain them and right. I, I, I can't get to them because we're looking at the big picture. But when you are able to step back and watch the movement of the book of Acts as a whole in these, in these big leaps, you see this amazing redemptive historical work that God is doing. And, and this is one great example as the gospel moves out of Jerusalem and, 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 and the the ethnic people of God specifically, into Samaria. And, and what you realize then is what's, what's happening is Israel is being reconstituted. Before the gospel can go to the Gentiles, the gospel must first go to the Jews, not just the Jews of the southern kingdom, not just the, the Jews of, of Judah, but... The, the entirety of what was historically the Old Testament people of God. And so in, in a symbolic way, almost, uh, the, the northern kingdom, which, of course, went into exile and never came back, the northern kingdom, which was adulterated because of their intermarriage. This is another place where your biblical theology came in that was a light bulb moment for me, where you talked about this being, how did you say it? It was, it was the restoration of what was lost in the divided kingdom. That's right. We see that coming full circle yeah, here, right here. That they're being rejoined together. That's, That's right. beautiful. And, and, and therefore setting the stage for the gospel to then now go beyond. Yes. To the Gentiles. And this that's had what to happen happens. first. And that's what happens in chapter 10. And speaking right. of being cinematic, I mean, I wish there had been cameras there, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. To, that uh, could recreate, first of all, this dream that Peter must yes. have had that's yes. telling him to go to this Gentile man's house and, and it, eat what he serves. Oh, and, it's, and it's, it's a shocking dream and it's an offensive vision. I mean, I, I, and we, of course, as we Gentiles, don't get that. we don't get it. Yeah. But this is deeply deeply horrifying. How can this be? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then, once again, something happens that's unexpected. The same thing that happened in Jerusalem. The gospel went out. People believed. And the Spirit came down. And the Spirit comes down. And it happened in Samaria. That's right. The gospel was given out. The unexpected believers that's right. uh, came to him. And even they received the Holy Spirit. And now, shock of all shock, um, he takes Peter takes the gospel into Cornelius's home, who is a God-fearing Gentile, and he sees the Spirit fall on the Gentiles. Yes, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And 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 therefore is is left. All he can say is, look, can, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? You know, water is 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 lesser, right? Water is just the sign of the Spirit. The Spirit has fallen on these Gentiles. And so when he asks that question, can we keep them from being baptized with water? He's asking, can, can, we, can we keep them from being brought into the, the fellowship of the church? And of course, the answer is no, we can't because they have the same spirit that we have. Now, of course, this is important for a couple of different reasons. Uh, 
and it, it gets to, I think, one of the controversies that, that or confu- points of confusion that people feel with the book of Acts. And that is this whole question of the falling of the Holy Spirit and the relationship with, with the uh, laying on of hands and, and the apostles. And I think when we step back like this and see this massive movement, first in Jerusalem and the falling of the Spirit, then in Samaria with the falling of the Spirit, and now on this Gentile Cornelius and the falling of the Spirit, we realize, oh, that is the very program that Jesus set up back in verse 8. The gospel is going to go first to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, we're not quite to the ends of the earth yet, but we're to an inhabitant of the ends of the earth. We're to a, a Gentile. And, and, and actually, Luke even points out that Cornelius isn't just any Gentile. He was a centurion, so he's an employee of Caesar, and he's of the particular regiment, the Italian regiment. This guy is from Rome. So we're, we're not to Rome yet, but Rome has come to us. And so what, what we see happening is the Holy Spirit is falling in a particular way, a dramatic way, to validate and confirm, yes, the gospel has come to the Jews And now, yes, the gospel has come to the Samaritans and nobody can gainsay that because they have the spirit. And yes, now the gospel has come to the Gentiles. And I know we always used to think that the Gentiles were unclean and we can't touch them. They're dirty dogs. But no, we cannot exclude them. We have to accept this because they have the spirit. And this is also then why I think uh, the, the apostles and particularly Peter plays the role that he does. Peter is really prominent in the first half of the book of Acts, and then he disappears. But at these key redemptive historical moments, as the gospel crosses the boundary from Jew to Samaritan, and then from Samaritan to Gentile, Peter is present. In the center. Peter's in the center of it. Peter is the one who goes to, along with John, goes to examine the Samaritan converts. Peter is the one who actually takes the gospel to Cornelius. And it is with the laying on of his hands that the Holy Spirit falls, confirming that this is for real. God is at work. These people cannot be excluded anymore. Uh, They're they're not second-class citizens in the people of God. They are fully equal to us Jews. Now, and, and, and I think Peter's role here is significant because Peter is representing the apostles as a whole. Uh, we, we, we think back to his confession of Jesus, that, that you know, when Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, he is making that confession personally. He's speaking on behalf of the apostles. And then Jesus turns to him and says, I'm, I'm going to build my church on you. Now, not, not in the way that maybe the, the Roman Catholic Church thinks that the, the church is built on Peter. We're not talking about an, an office. We're not talking about the Pope. But we are talking about Peter, representing the apostles as a whole, giving a true, authoritative, definitive confession of who Jesus Christ is. And his witness to Christ then becomes foundational for everything that follows afterwards. So, so Peter and the Spirit... At each step of this programmatic movement are validating and confirming God's redemptive plan. Once that's done, Peter disappears. If I'm teaching through the book of Acts, I would imagine there are people coming and 
week by week or whenever we're meeting, their hands immediately go up in all these scenes and scenarios of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. With very modern questions. That's right. About what this means, um, about what we, how we expect the Holy Spirit to work for us today with questions about speaking in tongues. And I think even as you're talking about, you know, uh, teaching it this way where you step back and you see the big picture of what's Mm -hmm. happening Mm -hmm. and how the spirit is falling as, um, each of these groups of people where Jesus said, you'd be my witnesses, the church is being established. That's got to help us, uh, have a framework to deal with those questions. But what are some things that we need to make clear as we teach through the book of Acts about the experience, uh, the meaning, the mm-hmm. purpose, specifically of tongues? Sure. Okay. Because it's going to come up when we Because it's going it. to come up. Oh, I, I, I don't think we can even understand tongues until we stop, step back just a little bit and, and make, make clear that as, as Acts 2 points out and as we see then throughout the rest of the book of Acts – the, the, the universal experience of believers when they come to know Christ is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the way Luke talks about that, is that indwelling of the Holy Spirit that every believer is given upon their regeneration and union with Christ. It's not a, it's not a second experience. It's not a later experience. It is the normal experience of believers, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That said, we don't always see then every believer who receives the Spirit speaking in tongues. We, we see it at these key redemptive historical moments. It ties the movement of the gospel to a new group of people back to the fulfillment of the prophecy in, from Joel 2. It ties their experience, this new group, it ties their experience to the experience that the founding group of Christians had there on the day of Pentecost. And it demonstrates that this is one body, one salvation, one spirit. But nowhere does the book of Acts suggest that every time somebody becomes a believer, they speak in tongues. And we see examples where people don't speak in tongues. There, there, there are times, as you just, if you just read through, you, you'll see many places where it's either not mentioned or it's, talk, you know, it's talked about that, that, that they receive the Holy Spirit, but there's no mention of tongue speaking. So I, I don't think that the book of Acts is a place that we can go to to argue that, that everybody should speak in tongues, that it's a necessary experience. Uh, that it is a greater or higher or, or later kind of secondary experience uh, that, that, that you might you might have. How about, how about just the experience of tongues itself? I mean, well, okay. it, it, yeah. So, um, is what happened there, which is described as speaking in tongues, the same thing that many of the people were teaching who perhaps ask about it and are probably familiar not. with that experience today? So probably not. So 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 in Acts chapter two. What is really clear is that the tongues that they're speaking in are actual, they're actual languages and the uh, spoken human languages that they didn't know personally, but the Holy Spirit empowered them to. And, and, and we know that because the response of, of, of the crowd, uh, they are, they're amazed because they are hearing these, these men who are all Galileans and therefore at most as Galileans, they would have spoken Hebrew 
Aramaic and Greek. Um, unlearned fishermen back then were often trilingual, um, but <laughs> but what, what, what they're what they're experiencing in Acts chapter two is is, is a crowd of, of of men who are speaking Parthian. You know, they're, 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 they're speaking the language of, of uh, the Elamites. They're speaking the languages of, of Phrygia and, and Pamphylia and, and Egypt. These are, these are local languages, human languages, and they're hearing the gospel declared in, in their own tongue. Now, I think what often people encounter when they encounter what's called speaking in tongues these days uh, – is is not necessarily any known human language, but they're they're encountering something that that people will will talk about as a as a prayer language, as a spiritual language. Um, Paul uses that language in the Corinthian correspondence. That's not what we see on the pages of Acts. So, I I, I want to caution people. Uh, I'm, I'm not personally. How do I want to say this? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not personally a cessationist, okay? I because I, I'm not a big fan of saying God can't do things. Uh, that said, the Book of Acts does not suggest that we should be expecting to speak in languages that we don't know. The Book of Acts is showing us that God poured out languages. That, that people don't know on his apostles and on new believers to demonstrate that the gospel had arrived. When we think about Paul's later instructions in the book of Corinthians on speaking in tongues, what is paramount there, I think, is to recognize that one, there is, there is no such thing as a gift of tongues that would supersede scripture. God has spoken. And, and, and anything that somebody might experience in, in terms of the speaking of tongues uh, that that would contradict scripture, that would uh, supersede scripture, that that would be more authoritative in your life than what scripture says. That's not from God. Am I correct that in the book of Acts, every time they spoke in tongues, one of the apostles was present? Every time that it's recorded, that is exactly right. It is. It appears to be part of this apostolic confirmation that. The gospel has gone to a group of people that were previously excluded. A redempt, in other, as I said earlier, a redemptive boundary has been removed. A, a redemptive frontier has been crossed. Mm-hmm. And having been crossed, it doesn't have to be crossed again, right? The gospel yes. now is resident there. And, and so we, we don't see uh, uh, the, the, the same sorts of confirming signs repeated. So much of the book of Acts is sermons. It's yes. pretty exciting, really, that we get a record of Peter's first sermon. Yes. And we hear uh, a couple more from him. Paul, of course, there's the beautiful, I guess we could call it a sermon of Stephen. Absolutely. In, 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 in chapter 7. Absolutely. Um, what do some of these sermons in the book of Acts tell us about First of all, what the gospel is, because that's mm-hmm. certainly what they're proclaiming. If we want, everybody wants to answer that question, mm-hmm. right? That, mm-hmm. That's there, what the gospel is, how it spreads, right? and what to expect when the gospel is received. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Because the book of Acts really is, in some ways, a series of sermons that are connected by uh, 
journeys, tra- traveling stories, right? The, the, the sermons of Peter, of Stephen, of, of Paul are, are pivotal in, in, in the book. One of the things that's striking to me about the sermons in the first part of the book of Acts is how confrontational they are. Yes, very bold. They are very, very bold. Again and again, as Peter is, is given opportunity to preach, he keeps reminding the Jews <laughs> that you're the ones that killed the Messiah. I know, kind of makes you uncomfortable. It does. It does make you uncomfortable. It feels, it, it feels rude. You, you, you know, as if okay, because we, we're we're not accustomed to calling people's attention to their mistakes and and the, the bad things that they do. We we we, kind of, we tend to in polite conversation. We want to cover over those things, right? And Peter, besides, we want to be winsome, and we want to be winsome. That's right. Peter is constantly confronting them with the fact that the Messiah came and you killed him. Uh, that that struck me powerfully as I was preaching through the, the the early chapters of the book of Acts, and of course, what he's doing there is is he is he's confronting them with with their need for a radical repentance in the face of a radical grace, because though they killed him, it was God's plan, and God intended to use that that. Uh, evil act of men to redeem men from their evil acts. But there's no way to get there unless you're willing to acknowledge, yeah, right, I did that. I find that one of the key points of moving from this text of a story about something that happened and even working through the theology or his use of the Old Testament, whatever, of this passage to a point of really connecting with those we are teaching. That's I mean, right. The truth that Peter could stand there and say, you did this, mm-hmm. you are responsible, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but all this happened out of the plan of God. That's right. This plan he had had for eternity. He's, he's actually, you, in a sense, you, you did it, but, but really God it. was doing it. And That's right. isn't that a truth just pastorally as, yeah. as we're teaching I, I guess I would just have to say, Michael, that's a truth I've needed in my life. Absolutely. We all I've need needed that, to we? know that this, you know, thing that was happening to me, um, yes, it's real. It's hard. Part of the evil of the world. But if I can step back and say, okay, but re- really, uh, it's, that's not what's in control. That's I, right. I'm not, I'm not a victim of odds or random chance or you know for those that we're teaching so many have been harmed that's right by the evil in the world whether it was a drunk driver or a, a molester and for them to see that central truth there point him pointing the finger in the face saying you are responsible and yet god is sovereign that's over right this. that's exactly right there's this marvelous uh turn in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, where, where he says, this, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So it was all God's plan, God's purpose. But then he turns, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So God's plan, but you did it. And then this, this turn of grace, verse 24, but God, but God raised him from the dead. There it is. You know, in, 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 our, in our lives, this remains true. God has a plan. God, God's in control. And 
part of that plan for our lives is going to include uh, suffering. Uh, it, it, it may include tragedy. Uh, it, it may include uh, un- unimaginable sorrows. And it's part of the evil of this world. Some of those things we, we bring on ourselves because of decisions we've made. Others, as you mentioned, people visit on us. They do to us. Others we experience just because we live in a fallen, broken world. It's part of the evil of this world. But God. But God. This gives us hope that yeah. if if God could actually intend the greatest evil of all time. That's right. Which is the crucifixion of his own son. That's right. Um, if he could actually intend that for a good purpose, then ma- perhaps he could use the worst he can thing work redemptively I can imagine in my, life too. in my life. That's exactly right. To use it for good. That's right. So that's, so that's one of the things that comes out really strongly in these sermons. The other thing that I would point out uh, in, in, the, in the sermons throughout is, is the emphasis on the resurrection. Yes, talk about that. Uh, again and again, what Peter and what Paul proclaim is not simply the, the crucifixion, the atonement. Jesus died for Jesus sins. Jesus died for sin. But Jesus got up from the dead. Jesus got up from the dead. And they, they emphasize the resurrection to, to make several different points. So the cross is central. He died, and he died because we're sinners. They, they never lose that, but they don't stop there. They go on to the resurrection to point out first, therefore, the, the, the new age has begun. The promise of new life, the promise of the kingdom of God is no longer out in the future. It's here. It's now. It's real. You know, maybe that's a part of this that we don't grasp as easily because we're not as steeped in the Old Testament as these people were. But for, um, you know, for hundreds of years, they'd been reading the prophets who promised a day to come, not just a Messiah who was going to come, but a new Messiah, a, a new kingdom, a, a new, new kingdom. reign, That's right. a new That's right. freedom, a, a whole new order. Just think about them reading the promises in the book of Jeremiah. That's right. That behold, a day is coming and, um, that I'm going to do a new work and the, the law is not just going to be written on tablets of stone. It's going to be written on your hearts. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happens on the and day that's of what's Pentecost. Happening. That's right. And, and then, and then continues to happen as the gospel moves into these, these new areas, these new regions of Samaritans and, and then Gentiles. And, and the guarantee of that is the resurrection. So they point to that again and again, uh, that the, the resurrection well, first, the, the resurrection guarantees that God accepted Christ's sacrifice. Had he been guilty, he would have stayed dead. So his, sacri- his sacrifice was effective because of the resurrection. Second, because of the resurrection, we, we know that the kingdom of God has, has, has been inaugurated. It has invaded our, our experience and our reality. New life has begun. But then the third way uh, that the resurrection is used again and again in the sermons is as a guarantee of a judgment day to come. Uh, Paul particularly will, will use the resurrection in this way. And he does this actually in, uh, in his sermon to the, the Athenians uh, in, in Acts 17. He gets, he, he gets to the end of his uh, presentation, which un, unlike uh, 
the, the the presentations where he's he's speaking to Jews and he can build on a very explicit Old Testament background. When he's in Athens, he's talking to people that don't know the Old Testament at all. So he teaches them the Old Testament without ever referring to it. He basically walks them through the first eleven chapters of the book of Genesis uh, without without referencing it. But but then at the end of his sermon, he just he makes this point. Uh, in, in verse 30, Acts seventeen thirty, in the past, God overlooked the ignorance of idolatry, such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus resurrection is a guarantee that there will be a judgment day. So oftentimes when we teach, I think I'm guilty of this sometimes, I can so focus on the death of Christ Mm -hmm. and what that atonement means and that substitutionary death, Mm -hmm. we can leave out the implications of the resurrection. resurrection. So I'm hearing you say, as we look through Acts, one thing our antenna has to be up for is looking at how the resurrection plays a part in the argument they're making in the sermon. Would that also be the case of the ascension? I think is it so. more implied, or, or is that no? Here and as I, well? I, I think that's I think that's right, and you, and it's it's particularly prominent in some of the early sermons, Peter's Peter's sermon in, in Acts two. I suppose even here, there's he he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's because he reigns. That's that's right. He's that's, seated at the right hand. Right. And he's going to come and judge. He's going to come and judge. That's exactly right. So for for the apostles as they preached Christ, the cross was central, but the cross took on significance in light of the, the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry, his resurrection and, and his ascension, and now pouring out the Spirit. They, they told the whole story. Um, it's, it's popular sometimes these days to say, oh, we shouldn't talk about the cross so much, we should talk about other things because the apostles talked about other things. That's to miss the point. They never got away from the cross. They always preached the cross, but they preached the cross in the full context of Christ's incarnation and his resurrection. So, Michael, as you've taught through this book of Acts over, what, three or four months? Yeah, this um, fall. That's right. Are there particular topics in it or issues that have been challenging to you? I mean, you're you're a PhD. You're steeped in the Bible. Are Are there certain ones that you have come to that you've had to do a little bit of extra work either to figure out or to figure out how to communicate in a way, because so many of our listeners as teachers, they can come upon something. I know for me, sometimes I can, I can kind of get something, but then it's a much higher hurdle for me to figure out how I'm going to communicate and explain that to my listeners in a way that's concise and clear. Are there some aspects to the book of Acts that would fit into that category well, for you? Yes. I mean, we've, we've talked about some of them already. I mean, I, I needed to spend a lot of time thinking about, some of the unusual aspects of the book of Acts, like the speaking in tongues, the falling of the Holy Spirit uh, at the hands of the apostles. And so I, I knew I was going to need to give extra time to think about how that worked in the book of Acts and how that connected with us. Uh, I think the thing that's been most challenging for me personally, as I've preached to my own congregation, is, 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 the, is this question of the... The, the way in which the, the life of the early church should 
and in what ways should not serve as a model for our life as local church today? You have to keep making that decision as you're teaching through the book, right? So did you have the grid for that or what do you recommend? How can a teacher know that to say, this is the way it ought to be because this is the way they did it when the church was founded or just that's what happened then, but that's not necessarily the way we have to do it now. Right. And I think, I I think I I generally do have a grid in in my mind. Uh, Part of, it begins with the assumption that that the narrative portions of Scripture, including the Book of Acts, are in general intended to be normative. That 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 that's just a fancy word for meaning that they, they should govern our lives today. They should be normative for us today. That doesn't mean every detail is normative, but in general, that's my assumption. Uh, then I've got to figure out, well, wh- wh- where do I draw the line? And, and a lot of that is, is simply asking the question, historically, what's going on here? And, and my, so, so you could start with, with Acts chapter 2, actually. We, we see this extraordinary kind of one-time event of Pentecost, tongues of fire coming down. Never, never really gets repeated again. There, there's, there's something a little similar uh, with with Samaria, but certainly after that, does not get repeated. Um, but then at the very end of the chapter, we're given this wonderful paragraph by by Luke about what I think does continue to happen. Huh. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to, pr- and to prayer. Uh, people are filled with awe and wonder at the signs that are being done by the apostles. Okay, now we don't have those anymore, mm-hmm. but there's a there's an interesting mixture of normal and and something that actually is not going to be normal. Uh, they're they're in one another's homes, they're they're eating together, they're sharing with one another. Uh, we get these moments throughout the book of Acts where where Luke is giving us a picture of what normal church is going to look like. Uh, and, and that is where I want to really point my congregation to, Hey, not, not, are are we seeing tongues of fire come down, but are are we breaking bread in our homes together and eating with glad and sincere hearts and praising God? Are we, are we enjoying the favor of all the people? Are we generous? Are we, are we giving up of, of, of our own plenty to help with the, the need, the lack of, of fellow believers in our congregation? Or, or, or are our homes private castles where, 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 where we take care of ourselves and the people we're related to by blood, <laughs> but, but nobody else is really welcome? Unless it's a special event, of course. You yeah. know, no, this, this was like normal Ordinary life for them. Ordinary together. Christian life together. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's been a challenge for me to help us think through how do we, how do we live that out here in Portland today? Mm-hmm. Uh, culture's different. Family structures are different. There are, lo- there, are lots of, there are lots of disconnects between life in Portland today and, and, and life in Jerusalem, you, you know, in, in uh, 45 AD. Uh, but uh, there are lots of connects as well. And I've wanted to try to figure those out. As you've taught through the book of Acts over these recent months and been studying it yourself, mm-hmm. taking it in, um, how do you think it's impacted you personally 
or maybe also just in terms of since it is so much about the establishment of the church and what the church should look like. So how's it impacted you personally yeah. and then perhaps as the leader of a large church? Well, this is one of the reasons that I wanted to preach on the book of Acts. I've been here at this church for four years, and uh, we're, we're in a process of kind of revitalizing, trying to, to, to bring some, some new life to a very historic church that's been around for a long, long time. Um, and so w- certainly one of the ways that it's impacted me is what we were really just talking about, about to, to what extent have, have I individually or we as a church begun to fall into a, a pattern of life as a church that has more to do with tradition and culture than it does with the, the power of the new life of the Holy Spirit at work in us, causing us to be witnesses to those around us. Um, that, that's, that's been profound for me uh, and challenging because it is so easy to just fall back into business as usual. Uh, a, a church calendar filled with programs that we've done for decades, and we do them just because we do them. Uh, and, and yet what we see here on the pages of the book of Acts are people who are radically spending their lives, who are, uh, being, are willing to endure opposition and suffering, whose lives are being uprooted, uh, all for the sake of witnessing to Christ the King. So, so that's been fantastic for me and, and I think encouraging for the church. Another way uh, that this has been kind of powerful for me uh, is, is realizing that uh, our life together here in Portland is a witness to the truth of this book because we are the ends of the earth. <laughs> uh, there's this, when I was, when I was growing up, uh, one of the things that was often talked about based on the book of Acts and, and the program that we talked about before, J- Jerusalem, Samaria, uh, the ends of the earth, people would talk about evangelism in those categories. You know, the city where you live, that's your Jerusalem. And maybe your state or region, that's your Samaria. And then the world is the ends of the, ends of, ends of the earth. And, and when you read the book of Acts in light of biblical th- theology, you realize, well, that's not true. Jerusalem is Jerusalem. <laughs> and Samaria, <laughs> Samaria is Samaria. And Portland is the ends of the earth. And the fact that the gospel is thriving in, in, in a seaport town on, on the edge of the Pacific Ocean is, is proof that Jesus is still at work. Jesus is accomplishing his mission. And the fact that we get to be a part of that as, as the baton is passed from one generation to the next is it's breathtaking, really. And he's still doing it the same way um, by his spirit through his word. That's right. That's exactly right. By his spirit through his word. And there's this wonderful, because that's, that's the constant. We, we, were, we were talking about this a little bit earlier and we got sidetracked and didn't finish. There's, there's, this, um, there's this pattern in the book of Acts where, where you see the baton being passed. Peter is really prominent in the first half. But by the time you get to the council of Jerusalem, boy, we see Peter for the last time. And, and he's not there anymore. He passes the baton to Paul. Paul picks up the baton and takes it. But then, of course, the, the, by, by the time Paul is getting ready to head off to, to Rome, Paul himself is passing the baton to the local churches that he's planted. And they are carrying on. 
Well, the baton's been passed to us. What's constant is, is that baton. It's, it's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ at, that is uh, proclaimed by human beings, not by angels, but by human beings who are filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Well, yes, and when we come to the book of Acts, if we come with the question of what is my life supposed to be about? Mm. What, mm. what is my church supposed to be doing? What is it supposed to be about? There it is. You will be my witnesses. That's right. That's it right. It kind of hands to us both uh, marching orders as well as identity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that uh, that, that identity as the, the people of God, the assembly of God in the local church who are witnessing to the truth of the resurrection through the, the, the radical transformation of our lives, this, this, this new humanity, this new community that looks different from the world around it, uh, this is what we're to be about. This is who we are. So, Michael, as we begin to come to a close, tell us, in, in your work and preparation for teaching through the book of Acts, have there been some particular books yeah. that have been helpful to you? Sure. What would you name? So there, there have been several that have been helpful. In terms of thinking about the, uh, the relationship between the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and the falling of the Holy Spirit yes. and this programmatic mission of Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth, one of the books that was really helpful to me is a book by Dick Gaffin, G-A-F-F-I-N, called Perspectives on Pentecost. Now, now, Dick and I end up being a, a, a little different on some of the details. And in the end, uh, Dick is a cessationist when it comes to the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, and I'm not. But I think he's exactly right in terms of understanding how the falling of the Holy Spirit is functioning in the book of Acts. So that, that particular book, Perspectives on Pentecost, I think is really helpful. Some other books that have been really helpful for me... Uh, John Stott's uh, commentary on the book of Acts, The Spirit, the Church, and the World, is, I think, superb, particularly as we're thinking about how it connects with life today, contemporary application. So, so David Peterson's commentary, The Acts of the Apostles in the Pillar New Testament series, is, I think, superb. And Daryl Bach, he has a commentary uh, on Acts in the Baker Exegetical commentary on the New Testament. It is also superb. Now, those two are more technical, but, but I think even for a motivated layperson, there's a lot that can be gained from them. Now, a fantastic little book, speaking of biblical theology, that I think is very, very accessible, uh, is this book called The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, Luke's Account of God's Unfolding Plan by Alan Thompson. And uh, it's in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series that Don Carson has edited. And he does a superb job of thinking through the, the, the redemptive historical movement from Old Testament to New Testament in the book of Acts and the way in which Jesus is reconstituting the true Israel of God in himself, Jew and Gentile, uh, and, and the way that's recounted in, in, in Luke's, Luke's story. Well, it must be time for us to come to a close because all the construction workers <laughs> in your office are now using their saws and hammers. Um, 
which it's been a delight to be here in your offices that really are, you really are. I see all the books stacked on the floor, not uh, quite in the bookshelves. Not yet. Well, this, this room is going to be floor to ceiling bookshelves oh, uh, in just awesome. a couple of weeks. And it's going to be filled with all of my biblical studies material. Well, it's been a joy to be here and hear those background sounds as well as the birds <laughs> out the window. It's been a joy to be here with you in Portland. And so you are literally building your church offices right now. And, um, you are seeing the Lord build his church here at Henson. And l- let's just close this way by imagining that you had around the table, we're sitting at perhaps a number of the leaders in your church, uh, leaders of Sunday school classes, small group Bible studies, and they were preparing to teach through the book of Acts or lead discussions on the book of Acts. What would be your charge and encouragement to them. Perhaps you can just speak directly to those who are listening to this audio, but imagining the people here in your church. How, what would you have to say to them? I, I think my my charge to to them would, would be that that Christ's words to Paul are his words to you as well. To to take courage that that Christ intends for us to testify to him to testify to him before the nations. And that that testimony is going to bring with it opposition. That testimony is going to bring with it suffering. But opposition and suffering does not mean we're doing it wrong. It's part of God's plan. As he shows himself to be king, the risen king, who is redeeming for himself a people, to his glory. And I would hope that that would lead us then to be able to say uh, with Paul that, that our goal, therefore, is simply to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given us, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for the hours of study you've done on the book of Acts that then you will bear fruit in our lives from what you've shared with us today. And thank you for listening to Help Me Teach the Bible. It's a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts. You can learn more about their gospel-centered resources at crossway.org. And you might especially look there at crossway.org for three books that they have that will help you as you teach through the book of Acts. One is the, in the Knowing the Bible Bible Study Series, a 12-week text-centered study of the book of Acts that's written by Justin Holcomb. Look at the new Preaching the Word on Acts by Kent Hughes, who's the general editor of that series, a really uh, capable teacher of the Bible, of course, a really helpful volume. And then look at Acts in the St. Andrew's Expositional Commentary series by R.C. Sproul. And join us next time for Help Me Teach the Bible.